Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Crowcast Podcast. I'm Shane. Hey, I'm Ronnie. And these are the audio versions of the interviews we've had with our special guests on Crowcast. This episode, we talked with Bernie Marsden. Yeah, this was back in August, uh, August the 11th, to be precise. Um, for anybody yet again who wants to see the visual version, um, it's episode 21 on YouTube because, like you said, Shane, this is the audible version. And, you know, we either talk beforehand, um, so we always do like a little bit of a, a skit before a guest comes on. Um, and then sometimes we're joined, well, majority of the time, with all the crows um, after the special guest has joined. So yet again... Anyway, anybody counting us, episode 21 on YouTube. This was done on August the 11th. Um, what a character Bernie was, mate, and what a legend. Absolute legend, but he talks all about the, the, the musicians he's played with, was phenomenal. I mean, his, his huge hit. <laughs> his yes. huge hit. Here I go again, talks about writing that and, and with Coverdale. I mean, it, the stories are incredible. The, the, the actual episode could have lasted for hours. Hey, you know what? He could have done a book about it. He could have. <laughs> yeah. For anybody um, who makes it through this episode or have seen the visual version, um, Bernie has got a book out and a lot of the stories he didn't quite want to leak at first. And then he starts to kind of give you a little dabble because I think you touched him on a few things and he was like, you'll have to buy the book, Shane. Yeah. Um, but we had it. We had a few out of him. So some great stories. Very fortunate to have Bernie Marsden on here because he's not great with technology. It took us a couple of attempts because he wasn't, um, well, he was new to the whole video live streaming across, you know, I don't even yeah. think we were doing Twitch when this episode, it was just YouTube and Facebook live. But um, here we are, Bernie, you've made it. Now you're on an actual Audible podcast as well. So oh, I don't know if that's his first You've made it. Never mind the, the the millions you've you've earned from that hit. You're on the Crowcast podcast. So, oh, hey, hey, should we? Um, let's get into it. Is it? Here we go. Strap in. This is Crowcast podcast. We are close. Bringing a guest, I've been busting to speak to him. Ladies and gentlemen, this guy does not need an introduction, but we kind of does to get on Crowcast. <laughs> the legend that is, he should be a sir by now, Mr. Bernie Marsden. Hey, 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 hey. how are you, boys? How are we doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. We're, we're, we're sweating a little. Is it warm where you are? He's absolutely boiling you. Yeah, only about 32 degrees today, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Not used to it, are we? No. no. Especially with your hair. Like, if I had hair like Adam. I know. It, it, it was dark this morning. Look what's happened. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, Bernie. It's a real pleasure and honour to have you on, mate. I'm glad that there's me being terrified of technology you know, a couple of weeks ago when you first contacted me and i'm saying oh i don't know if i can do that and now uh, now look at the, here we are it's great incredible incredible so you're at home then mate yeah yeah i'm in my kitchen wow that's a nice stone wall in your kitchen Ooh. yeah it's very basic <laughs> i got the same i got the same features throughout the house bernie old stone walls beautiful it is with the beams yeah, everywhere yeah sure. yes <laughs> 
How how have you been keeping Bernie throughout um, throughout the lockdown and everything? How um, how have you been? Well, th- thankfully, uh, you know, I'm okay. Everybody's good. Um, everybody's getting kind of stir crazy, and you know, I talk to mates all over the world, keeping in contact with the guys, and you know, everybody's in the same boat, really. You know, and that you guys are feeling it, you know, as much as anybody. And uh, I think the worst part is not having anything to. You look forward to gig wise, you know, to know that you're going to be playing in uh, Fishguard, you know, or, um, you know, I have been watching, I have been listening. And, um, you know, I'd love to be playing in Fishguard. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to play in Wales anyway, you know that. Yes, mate. Yeah. Yes. You are the legend of the mountain. It's Bernie Fest. Yes. Yes, Bernie Fest. <laughs> Um, yeah, what 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 kind of happened with you when it all um like with us um our, our record came out in February we just did a uh, a couple of runs of dates we had plans to go into Europe you know this was the this was the whole big push for us and then obviously everything yeah. kind of halted what um what kind of happened with you was did you have anything lined up did you yeah I had I had some gigs lined up uh, in the UK in um, I think it was May about I think. Maybe it was seven to ten shows. I can't remember. Uh, then I had the usual festivals booked in all through, you know, the summertime. And, of course, everything just was as – well, everything's been put back a year, really, like everybody else. Um, and I had a book tour booked as well uh, because my book is being reprinted. So the the, the publishing company wanted me to do a, a couple of weeks of that as well. That's also been rescheduled as well. Uh, I was really looking forward to all of those because I didn't. I, I look back on three or four shows now back in uh, January, and uh, it seems like in another world, you know, which was fantastic. But uh, you know, I'm I'm just part of every like everybody else, and um, I'm fortunate enough not to have to, you know, I mean, to be, you know, absolutely dependent on 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 gigs and stuff because I can choose whether I want to do stuff or not. So I do really feel for everybody else, especially with guys like you when. You know, you've worked on an album, you get it out, you get your press together, you get your tour together. Uh, Chris, I was talk, uh, Chris Barris, I know he had his whole thing ready, and he was an early victim of it because I think he'd, he'd booked a tour based around some pretty big shows in Italy. And, of course, Italy was the first thing to go down, and that consequently caused him to then cancel the rest of his European tour. So I guess, you you know, you guys are in a similar position, and that that's just you can't get that time back. All we can do is look forward to when we can play. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the story of our lives at the moment, this um, rescheduling or sadly cancelling, because as you know yourself, um, we, we've learned this, everything moves pretty much a, a year year ahead uh, yeah. when you're planning your, your cycles and your touring. And um, yeah. so sadly, there's certain things that we can't reschedule because we had other things in place. That's the, yes. the nature of the beast because, yeah. you know, the, that that elevation, that step up, like, you know, um, and the and same with you- Chris. If venues, you know, the venues have to be rebooked, booked in advance, and and now there's, of course, the problem with how many venues are going to survive, and you know, so it's a whole new, whole new bit picture, really. Which I'm, I'm sure, you know, everybody will pull together and do everything we can to to get back and get the, you know, get the first and foremost the fans out there to to go to a gig. You know, that's the most important thing, apart from people's health, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, we, I can't wait! Can't wait to get back out there on stage, and because we obviously did the Planet Rock um, live stream thing, and it, it was great to be back on stage. But mm. you know, when you haven't got that crowd in front front of you, it is so strange. And 
I don't think we realize just how much we feed off the crowd as a band, a live band, how much we get the crowd involved until they're no longer there. Until they're um, not there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't think anybody will ever take it for granted again, you know, once we do get back to doing it. Well, no. I think you're absolutely 100% right. But I tell you what I have enjoyed, Bernie, is that um, you on Instagram showing like your your guitars, um, your collection of guitars and, and talking about them and stuff. <laughs> how, many, how many guitars have you got? Yeah. Uh, ask my wife. Too many, she'll say. Um, I I always give a – it sounds a bit glib. I say uh, more than 100, less than 200. Right. But wow. I'm not I'm not in a, even in the same league as uh, the, the Joe Bonamassas of this world and stuff. I just have a lot of guitars because over the years, you know, I've been a collector. But first off, I was just wanted to buy a guitar, really. And if I, when we used to be in America a lot, you'd buy two, three guitars because they were relatively cheap, right. knowing you would sell two when you got back in order to keep the one you like the best, <laughs> uh, which sounds very nice these days. But for every, you know, 50 really tasty vintage guitars I have, I would have probably had 150 or 200 anyway. But I'm not complaining. I've got some nice ones. So what was the first guitar you bought? The first guitar I bought, you mean as a pro or to begin with? To begin with? Uh, the electric guitar was a Hofner Colorama. Yeah, it cost 32 guineas. But you don't even know what guineas are, do you? No. <laughs> you don't <laughs> anymore. <laughs> I got it from the, the very famous shop in the, all through the 60s into the 70s in London called Selmers. And they were the importers of Gibson and Fender and Gretsch guitars. They were the only guys who had those guitars in the country. Wow. And uh, the cheap end of it were these German Hofner guitars, which were basically, you know, affordable at the time. And uh, I remember saving up my pocket money and my paper round money and stuff and then getting my dad to come down and sign the paperwork for the money left over. And uh, that was it. Off I was going. But that guitar for the 32 guineas within about a year was paying for itself every weekend. So wow. it was a good move. Yeah. yeah. So how old are you then? Well, how old were you? I was about 15, 15 and a half, 16. Wow. Yeah. Maybe, so maybe were... a bit younger. So, Pardon? so did you, did you learn, um, through someone else teaching you or was it no was that, that would have been a luxury the, the, if you in the when i was a kid especially i mean i'm from a very small area from a very small town and i played the guitar there was a couple of guys older than me who were, who were in groups didn't even call them bands in those days and uh, i would go around and watch them playing pubs peer through the window got to know one of the guys but i was it was like i might as well have been talking to um, eric clapton or something because this guy was a god to me yeah, and I watched him play, and then I got the guitar, and I tried to copy where his hands were, and you know, I started to play Holly's songs or something like that, and I realized I could do it. Whether it was correct or not is highly unlikely, but uh, I know suddenly that I could play these things, and it sounded okay, and I was much better than the other guy, not the older one, but there were some couple of guys my age, and I knew I was already, I knew I was better than they were, you know. So the ego had kicked in very early. <laughs> that was before you even owned a guitar you knew you could play that guitar i think I, I was yeah when i was a kid uh younger than that i would go to lots of my cousins i come from a fairly big family and i would go to their weddings and they uh, god bless them they always had a live band and i remember seeing guys who oh, i thought I, I thought one band was the shadows for sure because the guy could play apache 
and he had a red Stratocaster. And I thought, well, that must have been the Shadows. I couldn't think of anybody else. You know, that's how naive or, you know, well, how young I was, really, because I mean, I think what was Apache, I'd be like 10 years old or something. So, wow. but that stayed with me. The fact there was a live, you know, four or five guys on a stage singing and playing, and that stuck with me because there's nobody in my family, you know, with a musical background. It must have just gone in and stayed in. Wow. Wow. It's funny you say Apache. That was one of the first songs my dad, um, my dad used to play guitar, and that was one of the first songs me and him kind of did. He did the rhythm, and yeah. I did the Marvin sort of lead. Um, that's funny. It's mad you brought that up. Difficult that's, to play. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, <laughs> but so so you just picked it up. No musical influences from your family. Yeah, well, after the Shadows, because I was like I said, I was fairly young, and then when the Beatles kicked in and all the Merseybeat thing, and there on the black and white screen on the Saturday on a weekend usually, there's these guys all having guitars, and I'm thinking, wow, that's I want to do that, you know. And so I would, then I bugged my folks, and I got an acoustic guitar, which was you know as usual, like everybody else, was pretty awful. But I learned to play, um, I think it was either the theme from Zed Cars or from Coronation Street. And my mum and dad said, well, my mum said, oh, do that again? And I went, oh, yeah, I'm really good, you know. And the moment they said, yeah, you're quite good. And that, the moment they said those words, I said, can I have an electric guitar? So it was a bit of a fait accompli, really. But they, they were great. They uh, supported me and encouraged me, you know. Wow. So when did you join your first band, Bernie? At school, I was in a band with really old guys. They were all about 21, 22. I was 14, I think, 14 and a half, something like that. And they were all then getting to 22 saying, oh, well, i got to leave the band soon because I'm going to get married and I've got to settle down. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you want to get married when you can play the guitar or the drums, you know? <laughs> so I was I was hanging out in bad or good company and decided, you know, I watched these, what I thought at the time were, you know, very de decent musicians just sell their guitars because they were getting married. I thought, that ain't going to happen to me, you know? And uh, luckily it didn't. Wow. <laughs> and did it did it evolve from there? Did you, um, did you start well, yeah, gigging? Well, yeah, I stayed with that band. And then once I got, you know, I could do... I could play stuff like um, the guitar part to D Detroit City, you know, Tom Jones's hit. Don't know you yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a kind of a tricky little thing, you know, but I could do that. And then people in the pub when I'm, like I'm saying, I'm 15 and a half or something, they would go, how do you do that? Show me how you do that. And this other guitar. And then this hero of mine stopped one day and said, show me how to play this particular guitar part. And I'm, I'm hang on, you know, the roles are reversed here. What's going on? You know, you're the man. And he said, oh, no, he said, not anymore. And it kind of so a bit of a light went on, I think, in the back of my mind to say, well, you can do this, you know. And after that, I had a few jobs. I left school. Uh, I had a good mentor at school uh, by by default, really, to be honest with you. You'll have to read the book to find out the story. Um, <laughs> but she was very important because she basically said, look, the only thing you're any good at is playing the guitar. So make a career of it. And in 1967, there wasn't many teachers telling you to do that. Yeah. You know? So yeah. she was a big influence, and uh, I, I did stick with it. I also saw her at a Cream concert. I went to see the Cream one night, and she was there, and she pushed me in the back saying, what are you doing out, out here at this time of night kind of thing? And she <laughs> gave me a little time that night with my mate. So, you know, destiny, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, you know, but uh, – so from there into the local bands, and I got headhunted by the, a bigger local band and then a bigger local band. 
until then I started to hear this guy, this up and coming guitar player from America called Jimi Hendrix. And I'm thinking, that's what I want to do. And all the guys in the band I was playing in, they were into the tremolos, you know, and I really wasn't very much. And I wanted to play Foxy Lady and they didn't. So sooner or later it was, I was going to leave and form my own band, which was pretty awful. But at least we were all, you know, of the same mind. And we rehearsed by phone really with albums. So the track two from Hendrix, track three from John Mayle, track four from Steppenwolf or whatever it was at the time, you know. So wow. when was the turning point where you actually stopped with the covers and started writing your own material and hooks? And- well, I had a band called Skinny Cat, which was the local heroes, really. And we, I was a big fish in a very small pond by that time. But I knew that if I wanted to be a, you know, turn pro and go, I had to do it properly. And I knew I was going to have to go on my own. Uh, in fact, with the, the drummer, bless him, he always said, you know, you know, you've got to go. You're like a runaway train kind of thing. And that's when I joined UFO in 72 73 so that's the turning point that's when i go into a as becoming a professional player with ufo and i thought it was, everything was going to be glorious from then on but uh, didn't really work out like that how long did you stay with ufo bernie that 20 minutes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, it's about eight months about eight months and and there's a lot about it in the, in my book. And I'm, I'm sorry, I just keep trying to plug the book. But no, good, good, good. About hmm? Yeah, no, no, keep plugging. Plug yeah, yeah, carry on. Well, the book's the book's called Where's My Guitar? But it, you know, it, it just it's not just a chronicle of everything went on. But there's a lot of story. So a lot of people don't even know I was in UFO, hmm. and that was a bit of a deal when it when it all came to an end. Well, I was with them about eight months, and I'm indebted to them. You know, we didn't get along at the time when we were all kids. You know, that we were really chalk and cheese as people. But without the experience I gained with them going straight to Europe, playing through Germany, Austria, Switzerland, into Italy, you know, then I, I would never have gone on to do, do the stuff. So I look back on it now with much, you know, more uh, tinted glasses, really. It wasn't so terrible as I thought it was, but at the time I thought it was because you think everything's going to be like, you know, hard day's night, really. And... Uh, it wasn't, but they did me a great service by taking me on, you know, and giving me the gig at the time. I joined a band called Wild Turkey after that, which was a couple of Welsh guys in the band, we'd call. And uh, from then, Wild Turkey, there's Cozy Powell and Babe Ruth and into Pace Ashton Lord, and then the other band. What are they called? Oh, yeah. Wild, yeah, what, yeah. What, let me stop you there. What was it like working with Cozy Powell, mate? What was that? Cozy was an incredible person to work with. Uh, great bloke and he was best man at my wedding we talked about motor racing and soccer as much as we talked about music really and he was that kind of guy and he didn't have any airs and graces he knew how good he was he got in the studio with him this incredible drum sound and i would be in the studio looking around thinking wow i'm playing with cozy Pony," and i would make a couple of mistakes and he would just look at me and go what are you doing Get on with it, will you? You know, that kind of attitude. And if you made a mistake on stage or he didn't like something, then then watch out because he was very accurate with a drumstick. <laughs> and it, it was just fun to be around, and he was a wonderful musician to play with. And uh, you talk to anybody, you know, and it's, I can't believe how long it is since we lost him, but uh, yeah. uh, an incredible influence on me as a person and as a musician uh, within the business as, a, as much as being a player the way that he was treated and the way he treated people has had a lasting effect on me. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, Did you um so then you went on to found um you were a founding member of a little bank called White Snake. <laughs> founding member. Founding yeah, member. that came out of um Pace Ashton Lord because um I was working with John Lord and Ian Pace, which that was another big step up. Like the first time I worked with Cozy because these guys, you know, just didn't take any prisoners, you know. They you know, you thought, hang on, if I'm playing with them they must think I'm in that league. So you better be in that league kind of thing. And um, working with John, especially and Ian in those early days, again, was my, another very quick 10 steps up the the ladder, really, you know, musically and working with those people. Uh, John was, still is, will always be a hero to me because of just the way he conducted himself generally, apart from the fact that I stood next to him for five years, listening to that incredible playing you know and then the other side of me was Ian Pace so uh you know I had a pretty good run really I met David in Munich because we were recording there David came down to see John and Ian and that's when we first met and to cut to the chase then he came there Pace Ashton Lord did five gigs and one album and then that was all over and then David was in London and I went to see a gig I bumped into him and uh he said I'm here to put a band together and uh why don't you come down tomorrow so that was it that's how it began. Absolutely wow. incredible. So when when what, what was the writing process like? Obviously you write you wrote uh, quite quite a few numbers, and obviously here I go again, multi million copies worldwide. <laughs> um, did you did you know that was going to be as successful? I mean, well here I go. I know it sounds yeah, I know it sounds a daft question. I, I don't suppose anybody knows, but did you did you know when you wrote that it was different to anything else you've written, and it was going to have that impact to anybody? You know. I, 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 we knew I, I was very, I, that song was around for quite a bit before we actually went to, I, I, I didn't do a, you know, a brilliant, brilliant demo of, I did a, basically a cassette of the basic tune, which was pretty much all together ex- except lyrically. I had some ideas and then David, to, you know, moved them around, but the song was pretty much, you know, ready to go. And when we did the intro, John Lord, I played him the intro on, on, a, on the guitar and he said to me, play that again. So I did, and he looked looked at me, and John was tall, and I'm not that tall, and he looked down and he said, you're a clever little sod, aren't you? <laughs> and I went, what do you mean? And he said, there's already a hook in this song, and I'm doing the intro on the Hammond. So that's why on the original version, it starts off with, with John. And once the, the, the song took shape... I knew we both said this is a pretty cool song. You know, this is this will be really good on the album. And what we didn't know at the time was we were weeks away from uh, the band disintegrating. But so it's the last thing I recorded with Whitesnake, uh, looking back on it. So uh, that's a bit of a testament to like, you know, don't throw the towel in too quickly yeah. kind of thing. But the, the whole process writing with David was easy. We And that was one of the main instigations to put the band together because he'd been through the whole thing with Richie and Tommy Bowling with the, you know, guitar hero stuff. And uh, neither me or, or, or Mick Moody were, were not interested in that. We wanted to be in a good band and write some songs. And we, Dave and I wrote, I think, three songs together in the first first four or five days. We, we were, you know, on terms with each other and understanding each other. We wrote Come On. That was very quick. And uh, he was working on a song called Bloody Mary. And I, you know, was there when that took took shape. And within what seemed minutes at the time, we were in the studio doing the, the, the Trouble album. 
So that's when we did kick in, and there's some pretty good stuff. It's very early. Travel, I always say, has great content. The direction is like, you know, zero, really, because we didn't really know what we were doing. We just knew we were having a really good time in the studio writing some good stuff. The greatest thing with Whitesnake uh, from my day one till the finish was no matter how good the backing track was, once you knew he was going to be singing on top of that backing track, it could only get better. Yeah. So that was always, that was fairly a uh, nice thing to have in the back of your mind. That's incredible. I mean, did you, did you think it would travel so well across seas? I mean, America just, it just blew up in America, didn't it, that song? And it was... Well, it did, but uh, we went to America with the original lineup on three occasions and we just didn't do any business in America. And, you know, it's easy to, to be, you know, bemoan other reasons for it, the usual stories about we didn't get support, we didn't do this. But the fact is, America never, you know, seemed to take to that band at the time, even though we toured with Jethro Tull, we toured with uh, Iron Maiden and uh, Judas Priest. Uh, David called us the heavy metal sandwich because we were on in the middle of those two two bands. yeah. yeah. We played in big big arenas, we played big shows, but there was never any real impetus about it. So when you go forward to then to the eighty seven album when they re recorded Here I Go, it was a different time, a different lineup. And uh I, I, I as soon as I heard it, I, I knew then that there was something fairly big in the offing, you know. And then to to myself, What do you mean something in the offing? Is it's already top twenty in America? And I didn't know. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff in between there with all the albums, you know, with Come and Get It and Ready and Willing. When Ian came into the band, you know, that, again, that was then a, a key change, you know, within the, the, the structure and the setup of, of the band. Right. Does it, does it cool. still... It's just incredible because everything you've just said then, and then obviously a couple of years ago, there's a, a, a movie come out and that's, that's on the movie and there's shows and... It's just, it's a song, like for our childhood, it's always been mm. there. That's incredible, because that's, a lot of musicians for me, um, or a lot of bands go into this, maybe I, I see it as the wrong way. They always, I want to make the money, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. But myself and Shane has always said, um, to immortalize a song, which you have successfully done, that's, that's, mm. that's, the, that's the, the holy grail, that's the... That's the achievement, I think, of any musician. If you can immortalize yeah, I, the song, yeah, incredible. You're right. I mean, I in my in all of our dreams as being in a band, you want to be successful. Yes. And yeah. people say, oh, I, 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 just, I, you know, I listen to quite a lot of podcasts with my, people I find interesting, and a lot of guys they say, oh, well, I just want to play the guitar. I just want to start. I wanted to do my thing, you know, stick to my roots and stuff. And, you know, I think okay, but everybody, you know, when you start off, you want to be a, you want to be a star, you want to be famous, and you want you want to be rich. You know, you want to buy a Ferrari because, you know, you see guys with it. That isn't going to happen. But if you get a chance to do it later on, whatever, you've probably been through so much before that, yeah. that, you know, by the time you get to a certain time in your life, you can do something or you can't do it. That's that's different. But, uh, you know, I, I get a little bit, uh, you know. To take it with a pinch of salt when people do say sometimes, no, no, I wouldn't want to have been, you know, in, in a, a million, multi-million selling band. Well, I mean, I think they would really, <laughs> you know. I mean, I wasn't in that band, but the song was there and it was doing the business and still is to this day. You know, while we're on today, this being played in America probably, a, how long we've we been on now, 15 minutes? He's probably on in America a hundred times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Every day. Yeah. So, 
you know, and and it's great. But I could listen to that version, and people say, "Oh, you must be, you know, paid off." I said, "No, not at all." Not, and that's nothing to do with the financial side of it. I could listen to that '87 album, the same as if it had been a Journey album or a Foreigner album. Uh, it just happened to be the the band that I was in with the same name, but it was nothing to do with the band I was in. You know, it was a completely different setup. You know, Davis reinvented himself on several occasions uh, with great success, and you know, I'm, I'm, you're not going to get anything negative from me about that. You know, and I when I get up and play with him now, when he comes when he comes over to Europe or whatever, you know, we have a good time. You know, and it works both ways. You know, I I, I still the song still looks after me and some of the other back catalogue, but. You know, here I go again is obviously the big one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I he said, well, you know, we're still doing well, you know, still doing the song. And I said, yeah, but without the song that broke Whitesnake so massive in America, you know, where would Whitesnake have been 30 years later? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's 50-50, really, you know. It's a good job I, I put that song together in 82. <laughs> and it's a good job they did it again in 87. So we're all happy, you know. Yeah. That must be such a great feeling, just – Walking up to Dave and thinking we did good, like here I go. Just... Yeah, yeah. He, oh, he texted man. me. He texted me this week, you know, and uh, we keep in touch. And you know, we've had a bit of a tragedy this week with the loss of Martin Birch, and um, you know, so he was in touch with me over the weekend, and you know, and Martin, you know, just you know, I don't want to you know bring the level of the show down, but Martin oh, was such an important guy, and like I think I said on my post, you know, just look through your record collections, guys, and and, and see how many times his name is there. You might not have noticed it, but you will if you look. You know, he's involved in so much stuff before he worked, we worked together in 76. You know, then and, and I just mentioned three names, you know, Fleetwood Mac, the Groundhogs, and Gary Moore from before Whitesnake. Afterwards, go Rainbow, Dio, Black Sabbath. Wow. You know, I mean, well, the list is, is, is endless. So Martin Bird, yeah. he was a giant and, and a lovely guy, very clever, and, uh, you know, going to miss him, miss him a lot. I'm in the studio this, this Friday, and... Uh, there'll be a bit of a quiet moment at one point because I learned so much working with Martin Birch in the studio. What was he like working with? Um, Because I've seen old documentaries with him and (laughs) or he's been like glimpses of when he worked with Maiden or stuff like that. And He was was a sarky bugger. Yeah. (laughs) In a very nice way. Inspiring one, inspiring one of those producers who gets the best out of you or? Absolutely. But by, by appearing to try not so ever to do it. Uh, there's a song called Don't Break My Heart Again on Come and Get It. And the guitar solo on it is me doing the run-through. So I did, I played on while we were setting up, you know, the faders were going up and down. I played the solo and then said to him, okay, Mark, let's go. He said, we've done it. No. And I said, what? He said, we've done it. He said, it's done. And I went, no, no, no. I said, I'm just, I was just messing, I wasn't messing about, but I'm getting the feel for it. He said, You've nailed it. And I wouldn't have it. And he allowed me another hour or so to put a solo together. And all the time, as I, as I went for the third, fourth go, fifth go, sixth go, all I could see was this smiling, smirking face in the corner. <laughs> going, it's my time you're wasting and you're wasting your time. And we've got it in the, in the can. And the solo that he recorded is the one that you can hear. I love that. That's amazing. And he did that on several occasions. He did a one thing with me, uh, something, and he went, I, I thought I'd played, you know, when those things, you know, you know, it was like when you're doing a solo stuff. And I played this solo, and I thought that was pretty, you know, even though you don't want to say it, that was, that was good. Yeah. yeah. And I looked at him, and, and I went, good? And he went, one note samba. 
And I went, what? They went, and I said, wait, so in the middle. And I looked back and I had no idea what I'd played at that point, and he was absolutely on the money. And every time I think now, 30 years later or whatever, and I'm in the studio doing a guitar part, the moment I go <laughs> three or four times on one night, I'm thinking, one night samba, you know, because he's <laughs> in my head. Yeah. And he always will be, you know. But once again, you know, don't do that. You know, do something else. And he would have, then he would say to me, what would Peter Green have done there? Meaning, not that. But he wouldn't yeah. say that. He would say, do you think Peter Green would have played that? And I'd go, no. Then why have you? <laughs> and so quietly effective, you know, and always with a smile and a grin. And afterwards, uh, should we have, you know, let's go and have a lager now or whatever. He was fantastic and a genius ears, you know, just all the mixes of Martins on those original albums. And, you know, I can't speak, you can tell, I can't speak highly enough and he's going to be greatly missed. And my condolences to his family and stuff out there because it's it's been a pretty tough couple of weeks. So it's nice to talk to you guys now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful stories there. So, uh, talking about the studio, do you did, were you did you thrive in the studio? Did you like the studio as opposed to being on stage? Is it kind of? I find the studio uh, Cozy Powell is responsible in a way. Uh, before I worked with him, I was always a bit in the studio. My eyes would go, "I'm in a recording studio," yeah, and a, uh, almost load a bit of pressure on. I think it comes from when we were kids, and it was five quid an hour, and you knew that once you'd gone past three hours, you'd spent fifteen pounds, and oh, and we've only done one and a half tracks, and that kind of. I'm sure you've been through the same thing. And Cozy would just turn around and say, well, "What's what's wrong with this?" Oh, the time's going on. He said, "Listen, this is just a place of work. We're here to play. They're here to record it, and then it goes to the record company, and they put it out. Get on with it." Yeah. And I thought, you know what? That's not bad advice, you know. So the studio, I think, is incredibly, I mean, especially these days, you know, with with the beauties of being able to digitally edit and stuff like that and, you know, everything. But I'm not very technical, never have been really. But uh, it's nice working with the younger people who know their way around, a, you know, a, a computer and doing all the yeah. business. But, you know, I still stand by the old days for analog days and those records sound pretty good to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't just mean my records. I mean generally, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah our guitarist is exactly the same. He's, uh, <laughs> he, he, he prefers, he always says, any analog, analog. He prefers it. Yeah. <laughs> He's always, yeah, it's always been the same. Well, I did my last album about three, four years ago in, in uh, Abbey Road. And um, you had the choice there. You could do a little mix of both analog and digital. That was pretty good. Yeah. But uh, to, to tell you, to be completely honest with you, I don't know which part was which, even though they were saying, we're going to go analog here. We're going to go. Yeah, it was like, okay. Yeah. Sounds good. You know, sounds really good. Carry on, you know. Like we've never done tape and stuff. So was it a big difference in time-wise? Like when you were recording, like back the, back in the day, was it, was, is it quicker now? Is it just? Oh, I think it's quicker time? now. I think it's quick. I mean, I, I dread to think how much time <laughs> we, we all spent, and, and if you added up the minutes, waiting for the tapes to just to reload and to respool and, yeah. you know, wind back. Whereas now it's a, literally a second tap of tap of a computer button. Uh, but, you know, the two inch tape was exciting, the 16 track and then 24. And then suddenly it started going mad. And um, I don't know, there, there was something physical about seeing that tape machine click on and, you know, going around the spools on those two inch tapes. There was something pretty, when I think back on it now, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad I was there and I've seen the, t the differences, you know, that's good. Yeah. 
Yeah, because we've recorded in Rockfield and they've got a couple of tape machines up there. And every time I look at them, I'm thinking, oh, I'd love to do that. Just to, just to experience it, just to, just to say you have, you know. Um, I saw that not- uh, documentary on Rockfield a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, really, really enjoyed it. But I must call Kingsley up because he didn't mention UFO. And my first recording session with them was at Rockfield. Wow. So I've got a, I definitely got an axe to grind with Kingsley. Get on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was my first experience of uh, location recording. And um, Dave Edmonds was, was producing it. So it was pretty good company. Wow. Yeah, Dave, uh, Dave Edmonds and the Readers, was he doing that then or was he doing something else? No, he was on his own at the moment. Love Sculpture had finished and he was he was a solo artist by then. He was a big star. He dad, I hear you knocking and, yeah. you know, I, I loved working with Dave. We've only seen each other a couple of times since, but uh, a very major, ma- major uh, artist. I've always been involved with Welsh people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, <laughs> lovable, lovable. <laughs> I know, no, no. There's been there's been a lot of that in this, um, you know. Oh well, was a lot of Scottish guys and stuff, and English guys. But there's been, there's been a my whole band at the moment are Welsh. All, all yes. the guys, you know, that, the guys from um, Cardiff and around your way. Where are um, you? We are Bridgend, um, so we're only up the road. Oh, yeah. down the road, whichever way, whichever way you look at it. But we um, we came to watch you in the tram shed with um, um, Nev. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Nev was singing and yeah. um, Dean, Dino yeah. on drums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're they amazing really players. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. a good night with Chris Barris. Yes. Yeah, yeah. fantastic yeah. night. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was. It was a, that, the plan was to do another 10 of those this year. Right. So that's that's what we've been, not been able to do, you know, the Ready and Willing show. So whether that continues into next year, but next year will be the anniversary of Come and Get It. So I might have to fuse the two together, but uh, anyway, we'll decide. Fantastic. Would you mind, Booney, taking a couple of questions from uh, the Crow family? People are watching. No, no. my pleasure. Uh, we got we got a couple here. This is from uh, Derek Beecroft. Has Booney had any scares with his guitars whilst traveling? For example, temporarily gone missing at airports or delayed or mislaid at a gig, etc. Um, no, I've been lucky. Over the year, when you consider how many times it's been possible to lose stuff, uh, I think once we had to have a promoter have a guy break into a store in Sweden to get guitars for a gig because ours never arrived. They arrived the next day, but there was a gig that night. Right. And they were saying, no, they'll be on the first plane tomorrow. Well, that's not much use for tonight. So I think that was a Sunday night, and um, the guy had to get – he got the police, and they then broke into a guitar shop and took uh, two or three guitars out so we could – but. Uh, no, I've been uh, fairly, fairly lucky that way. Especially when I think how I used to travel all around this place, all over the world, with the, especially with the beast, just in a, in a, in, a, in a case, and it would go in the, in a hold and everything. But it had a flight case. But uh, even you know, I wouldn't even dream taking it anywhere now. But um, well, that, that yeah, leads me on perfectly. Really. That leads me on perfectly to this next question. Uh, Bernie's guitar, the beast, is possibly one of the most famous guitars in the rock world. Can Bernie tell us the backstory on how he came to own it? P.S. Please come back to the Steelhouse Mountain soon. <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. We'll talk to Mikey. I'm sure we'll sort something out. Um, I had a guy, there was a guy who was a kind of a Les Paul connoisseur in the early 70s, and he was kind of sourcing guitars for people he thought should have them, which sounds very presumptuous. I know that he found the one for me and he found one for, I think, another one, two other guys I knew at the time. 
And he, he showed up at the marquee one night and said, uh, why don't you use this? And I said, well, you know, how much do you want for it before? And he said, well, let's talk about that afterwards. I played the guitar and it was just so incredible. Uh, the other guitar player in the band at the time accused me of turning the amplifier up from like six to nine because the thing was so loud. Wow. And uh, just said, you know, you've got to have that guitar. And I said, well, I suppose so. And when I got the guitar, he... Um, we came to a deal. I couldn't really afford it, but he was a really nice guy. And he just kept on saying, I think you need to have this guitar. And of course he was right. And only a year later, he came to another show and I, he came into the bar, I think before the show and the guitar was at my side and he said, how is it? And I said, well, it's fantastic. And he said, yeah. So, well, isn't it amazing that a guitar like that could be let go by somebody like Paul Kossoff? And that's when that kicked in that he'd bought it from Andy Fraser, who had bought it from Paul Kossoff. So the lineage of it was going backwards and forwards. And then, of course, I've had it for nearly 50 years now. And uh, the, the the mysteries continue because because of, of that, you know. So he said, oh, no, we, we use that guitar on, Fire, on the Fire and Water album. So, you know, who knows? But Koss had a lot of Les Pauls. But uh, this one came from the guy who sold it to me, got it from Andy Fraser, the late Andy Fraser. And um, I don't know, you know, it's still mine and it ain't going anywhere, you know. So, <laughs> so that's how I got it there. I mean, there's a bit more to it than that, but, you know, that kind of covers how I got it, yeah. Wow, amazing. Um, there's another one here. Which one album from your illustrious career makes Bernie the proudest and gets him thinking, yeah, we did pretty good on that one? That's from Grant Nan. Grant Nan. Oh, that's... Uh, uh, I, I know one album that never got made, which would have been fab, it was uh, the Cozy Powell group because they had Don Airy in the band, Neil Murray. And, you know, Hammer was a very, very special type kind of group. But we only recorded sessions for the BBC and then we were going to be produced by Mickey Most. And he decided that he, he wasn't going to do it and uh, came to a sold-out gig one night and said, we're ready to record. And said, no, we're not going to do it. He said... He said, you blokes know what you're doing. He said, I can't be having that in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> so the record. band broke up very quickly. But I think the album I'm, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm always very drawn to Ready and Willing because that, that was kind of the album that broke Whitesnake into the, you know, the bigger league. Uh, but Come and Get It is, you know, I couldn't, if it had been tomorrow night asking me the question, I probably might say that. I was very pleased with Shine um, in 2014-15 because I hadn't made a record like that for a long time and I was indulged by the record company time to do what I wanted to do. So Shine is a very, you know, it's, it's kind of a mix of, you know, the me from that period and me now really. And when it, what's nice is when we're on stage playing songs from that album, they get really well received as you know, because it's, it's kind of hard to follow walking in the shadow of the blues. And so um, we play both and the people are kind and they're nice. So those two albums, but you know, it's difficult to, it's like choosing your favorite, child really you know yeah. they're all they've all got something to to look back on and because as you well know there's so much more that goes with a recording session than the actual record that finally comes out oh, you know, absolutely. all, all yeah. the drama all the drama the traumas everything else you know where's the wine you know how was the food <laughs> you know especially when you're residential and a lot of those white snake albums were we did come and get it at uh, uh, the john lennon's house which was ringo stars at the time uh, then we did Ready and Willing at a place called Ridge Farm, 
and Saints and Sinners was done at Clearwell Castle. So we were always kind of together, you know, and uh, I think that shows in the recordings. Yeah. Incredible. So if when you think about, okay, they were the albums, but what, what one moment when you were playing live on stage, um, any anyone that sticks out where you thought, wow, <laughs> that take, takes your breath away? There's a couple of things that stick in my mind, that have stuck in my mind over the years. One was a one night at, uh, I think, on the Come and Get It tour, Liverpool Empire. So being in Liverpool where the Beatles played and, you know, being part of that whole thing was how I started. But when the lights went down and there was no really big fanfare, we would just come out and say just and hit an E chord. But the roar that went up in that, I think, what, 3,000-seater? which it kind of shook me, you know, really made me take a step back. It was amazing atmosphere. Wow. And the other one was I we, we arrived at Bingley Hall on a tour and there was thousands of people to me outside the gig. And I got, we, we went in with the tour bus and my, my, my guitar guy came out to meet me and, and I said, oh, because well, we were a bit late. I think we'd been somewhere. I can't remember what had happened. And I said, when are they going to let the people in? And he laughed at me. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, there's thousands of people out here, weren't they? He said, they're the ones who can't get in. Wow. And that's when it hit me, like when I went to a Rolling Stones concert when I was 19 or 18 years old or whatever, thinking, God, this band, you know, we are really a big band. And the other one, as, as a third one, it was, was Donington Park hmm. with, when we played with, it wasn't our show, it was an ACDCs, but, you know, word has it, it was a bit, a bit of a 50-50 on the day, you know. That was incredible. That was when I stepped, stood out and tried to do my guitar hero thing and hit the chord. And when I looked out front, you know, there's like 80,000 people as far as you could see. But then I looked to my left and my right, and as many people went that way and that way as they went out front. And I didn't want to see that again. I stepped back over the monitors. I never went out there again. <laughs> that was a big gig. That was a big gig. But it was a great gig. Probably one of Whitesnake's greatest, you know, 75 minutes. For me, wow, incredible! There's a lot more, but we asked, we'd, we'd be going all night, so <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. imagine it. <laughs> Brilliant. Have you got any questions here, Ron? I'm looking at the side here. Um, yeah, um, Rob Evans has asked, Have you personally achieved everything you wanted to achieve in the music business, or is there anything you still didn't uh, do that still niggles you? No, nothing niggles me. I, I've been very lucky, uh, fortunate, or whatever, whatever word you want to do. I've, I've worked with some unbelievable musicians, you know, one-to-one. Mm. I've got to meet so many of my, my heroes who have become, you know, friends or whatever you want to call it. And that, but that goes on to this day, you know, only in the last year and a half or so, you know, one of your local heroes, uh, James Dean Bradfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I met, I met, I met a guitar store thing, and only then did I find out that him and Nicky were huge Whitesnake fans when they were kids. Yeah. And you know, so it goes on. So you know, there's nobody a bigger name than the priest, you know, the Mannix, and yet that was that means as much to me as when I first met Jeff Beck with Cozy Power when he said a mate of mine's coming tonight, and 25 minutes before the gig, Jeff Beck walks in. You know, and I, lo- and I like quietly lost my mind. Yeah. But, you know, he was great. He was really charming and really nice, looked at the beast and uh, asked me about the guitar, you know. And I, But I, all I could think of during that gig was Jeff Beck's out there somewhere, 
you know. Yeah. The same when George Harrison came to see Whitesnake in, uh, in Oxford one night. And by some sheer coincidence, I could see him clearly in my eye line. Now, you know what it's like at a gig. You don't really see anybody. But I kind of didn't know where he was. And then I saw him thinking, and all I could think all the way through the show was, I hope it's not too loud for him. <laughs> it made him laugh his head off afterwards. You know? And uh, we became pretty good mates, you know, but uh, things like that. So I'm, I'm not going to, you know, moan about not doing something because I've, I've, I've been, you know, you know, hanging out with this guy or that guy. And it's been fantastic. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for every, every, everything. And then getting to, work with Joe Bonamassa the last couple of years mm -hmm. as you know really again an, another another stage you know and when his next album comes out you'll 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 hear the results which are just pretty amazing you know and he's a fantastic musician lovely guy and uh, you know I'm I'm proud to call him my friend you know and uh, even though we are guitar players you know we're just people really which is what I try to maintain and uh, that's an, another bit of John Lord and Cozy Powell you know, still staying with me. So I, I, I'm a kind of look for, you know, I, I don't tend to want to look over my shoulder and say, oh, I wish I'd have done this or I wish I'd have done that, you know. Yeah. You know, I mean, after Whitesnake, what I should have probably done or maybe given a chance to, I could have tried a little bit harder to make a name for myself solo in Japan, mm -hmm. where I was doing very well as a guitar player, you know. And But I felt sorry for myself after Whitesnake folded for like six months, came back, yeah. oh, I'm not going to play anymore. I think I might start playing piano, you know, <laughs> I wish. And yeah. so I, I could have probably done some, but that's the only thing I would, I don't, and that's not a regret. That's something I should have probably done. I might sign, I might have read contracts a bit better. <laughs> right, yeah. There might be something to look back on. Yeah. No, that's a definite, I would definitely advise anybody read the contract. Yeah. Yeah. But that's another that's story. That's good yeah. advice. So you, is there um, anyone that you kind of wanted to play with, but never had the chance to? Whether it be uh, a singer, guitarist? You know, the last 10 years running out, you know, I got to play with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. Wow. Now, if you go back to that 15-year-old boy going to see The Cream. Wow. Can you imagine that? Wow. Yeah. And not yeah. just play with them, you know, be on the uh, fast text phone, whatever you want to call it, you know. Jack Bruce is phoning me up to say, come and play at Abbey Road. And then with Ginger as well. I mean, okay, there's another whole bunch of stories in there, especially with Ginger. But, you know, that's now on my CV in the last five years. I'm playing with the Allman Brothers in New York at the Beacon. You know, who would have thought that? And yet it happened. So I, I can't ever say I'm sorry I didn't do something because everything that's happened has been fantastic. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've got to get your book, Bernie. I've got to get this book. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Available on my website. Here we go. There we go. That's <laughs> oh, incredible. Um, I'm looking, you're on. Is there any other questions? I can't see any. No, that just blew me away. That did. Uh, yeah. Before before you go, Bernie, I just want to say about Ginger Baker because he's one of my favorite drummers. Um, mm. The reason why he's one of my favorite drummers because you got your Bonhams and you know when you go through like Buddy Rich and stuff like that. I found that Ginger Baker had it. He had it all for me because he had the the jazz style, the very loose but yet in the pocket solid rock. It was almost like you could you could cram everything into him. Like, and I think he's 
even though he's well known, I still think he's underrated. I still think he deserves far more recognition because I know we said about Cozy Powell earlier. Ginger Baker is a phenomenal drummer, like you know. So, well, well Ginger, Ginger, you know, forget the um, character, you know, forget the yeah. all the stories and you know the the, the person because he could be uh, different. <laughs> when he played, you know, but Ginger would always I, I'd. Not that many, you know, one to one. But when we did chat in the studio or whatever in a, for a, a house at rehearsals, which were I could write, we could do a whole interview about a Ginger Baker rehearsal, but there's something else. And he was a guy who would always consider himself to be a jazz a jazz drummer, yeah, who played rock. Mm-hmm. And I would do this, but that came from here. He loved he loved African rhythms. He, he loved, but he was a rhythm machine you know, before the term is was even probably bonded around, you know, and he, he could play only the way he wanted to, which just always pretty much worked. When we did the sessions at Abbey Road, when we were doing some cream stuff, it was incredible because it was it was easy to stop playing because I was just, you know, two, three metres away from him, watching him play. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when one of those Ginger Baker fills happened, I just would go, oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so we say, well, something happened, the guitar stopped, what's going on, you know? So sorry, that's me, I'm just getting blown away here, you know? But then instead of him saying, oh, thanks, mate, he would then give me a rollicking for making him do it again. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of thing, you know, it's that 50-50 thing with him, but, you know, the fact that it can never happen again now is, is you know, is I, I look back on it now, again, you know, it's always nicer to look back and go, you know, this was actually amazing, but it was amazing. Yes. You know, to, to be with, be around him wasn't maybe as amazing as it could have been when he was younger. I don't know. But, you know, I, I, I could see the way that he must have been so frighteningly powerful in his prime because he was still playing really good at the time when we were recording with him. Jack was a different thing. Jack was much more the musician to say to you, how do you want to do this? I feel it's like this, or he wouldn't push you into anything. You know, he, he wanted you to play the way you play because that's why he'd, he'd hired you to play on his record. But, that, you know, it works both ways. Yeah, 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 for sure. And um, But I've been lucky with drummers, Ronnie. I mean, it's, you know, look at my CV for drummers. I mean, you've got yes. Simon Phillips, Cozy, Ian Pace, Ginger, you know, uh, Jimmy Copley, the late Jimmy Copley, who was a phenomenal drummer. Uh, and there's loads more, you know. Jeff Jones was the original drummer from uh, the Wild Turkey, and he was an inc- he was in Man, and uh, uh, yeah, he was in he was in Man, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, amazing guy, amazing player, and all these people who, you know, I, I think when I did my first solo album, I think uh, Cozy was on it, Ian was on it, and Simon Phillips, and uh, I used to joke about it, but I think it was true. More drummers bought the album than guitar players. <laughs> At the time, I was the most unknown person on the album. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm looking forward to having a beer with you up the mountain and uh, pressing you yeah, on more too. stories about Ginger Baker and um, and Cozy, especially, mate. That's yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you be very. I'll look forward to that very much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Bernie, and I'm so glad you got your head round. Honestly, we, we're we exactly the same as you. We've had to learn all of this new world telly-talking thing, whatever it is, but it, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on and listen to some of those stories. Yeah, it's been it's been really good. I re- really enjoyed it, and, uh, you know, let's do it again sometime. Hopefully, hopefully we can do it, you know, one-to-one in Definitely. person. 
Definitely, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, right. Thank you, Ryan. Take care, and we'll Thank see you soon, you. mate. Take All care. the best. You soon. All the best. Bye. Thank you, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to Crowcast Podcast. Don't forget, this episode is also available to watch on our YouTube channel. For up-to-date information on everything Crows, follow us on all our socials or visit our website, thosedamncrows.com. Tidy. Ta-da!